This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live recordings of talks direct from the Sydney Opera House stages. My name's Edwina Throsby and I'm the Head of Talks and Ideas Programming. Today's podcast features another stellar event from Antidote, our new festival of art, action and ideas. James Thornton and Martin Goodman are environmental lawyers and co-authors of Client Earth, one of this year's most important reads on sustainability. The session is chaired by Dr Alessandro Pellitson from Southern Cross University. Scientists have coined the term Anthropocene to describe the new epoch in which humans and human activities are capable of shaping the Earth's geological and atmospheric systems. However, this capacity to uh, determine the future, not only of human civilizations, but also of entire ecosystems for millennia to come, does not happen mechanically. Rather, it is harnessed by legal and regulatory structures. Law is the grammar by which we write the future of this planet. And this is the insight that animates Client Earth, a non-for-profit environmental law organization uh, whose focus is to make it possible for citizens and non-governmental organizations to bring environmental actions to courts. Client Earth is not just a name, it's a descriptor. The Earth is, indeed, its client. Client Earth is the inspiring creation and inspired creation of James Thornton, its founder and CEO. But James is much more than that. He's a solicitor in England and Wales. He's a member of the bar um, in the United States. He has been named by the New Statesman as one of the 10 people who could actually change the world. He's a naturalist, an author, a violinist, a bird watcher, and a Zen priest. <laughs> James' impressive curriculum is certainly an indicator of the interesting story behind the origin of Client Earth, a story that James has written in conjunction with Martin, Martin Goodman. Martin is a published author of nine books, both of fiction and non-fiction, as well as holding the chair of creative writing at the University of Hull, where he is the director of the Philip Larkin Center for Poetry and Creative Writing. Ladies and gentlemen, James Thornton and Martin Goodman. Thank you, Alessandra, for that warm introduction, and to all of you for coming out on a, on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, coming to hear uh, a talk by anyone on a Sunday afternoon uh, is a tremendous sign of being really connected with the planet. Uh, this, this is great. And it's a real pleasure to be here uh, back uh, almost 10 years ago. Martin and I were both uh, on stage at the Opera House with Brian Eno uh, when he was ch uh, curating, I think is the word, the Luminous Festival. And Client Earth had just barely begun. And um, one of the things we did was to have a discussion between me and Brian on stage about what the vision of Client Earth was, and then to bring up a group of Australian environmental activists and have a discussion about environmental issues in Australia and uh, where things should go. And I wanted to give you a, a kind of update about what's been going on uh, since my last appearance here. And Alessandra tells me there's an Italian proverb which says when there are two things, there must be three. So maybe one day I'll even get to get, come back. Being at the Opera House, <laughs> I have to tell you, it was a very good gig for a lawyer. <laughs> uh, so uh, what we're trying to do at Client Earth uh, is, is very much take the Earth as the client. And the name is something that Martin came up with. Uh, I was creating Client Earth, and I was trying to 
think of what the name could be, and I came up with about 108 names. I stopped at 108, having checked every one of me on the internet, and since every name is now global, I would find out that some great name that I thought I was going to use had been taken by a sewage treatment company in Florida. <laughs> <You> know, uh, <laughs> Ah, so we were walking on the beach in Santa Barbara, where my parents were living at that point, and Martin said, uh, when I, I was in despair, he said, well, uh, you're a lawyer, who's your client? I said, simple, my client is the Earth. He said, that's it, client Earth. So went back to the hotel, and I did a Google check, and it's the only time I've ever come back uh, with zero uh, on Google. I said, kismet, so that's the <laughs> name. And the, the name uh, really does, I think, uh, uh, try to signify uh, what we're doing. Now, I had done this type of work in the United States for some time, and before getting further in, I want to acknowledge that at that point, before I started Client Earth, there were two countries that had uh, a sophisticated use of environmental law for people's rights in nature, and that was the United States and Australia. Uh, the United States beginning in the 70s, Australia uh, in the 80s with the founding of the Environmental Defenders Office. So those, so Australia and the United States had had this world-class uh, group of lawyers uh, using law to protect the planet. It was a new idea in the EU. I, I went there uh, and um, uh, we moved there together, and I thought, well, this is going to be a lot of fun. Europe is so sophisticated. What do I have to do? You know, I can kind of kick back. Um, and, uh, but join one of the great organizations like WWF or Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth and be a lawyer there. And as it turns out, uh, throughout Europe, really, they didn't use lawyers. Um, it, was, it was a new concept uh, in Europe. Uh, campaigners uh, ran uh, everything, and uh, campaigning and the use of law, in my mind, have to go together. So they were missing a big piece, uh, and there was skepticism at the beginning, and then as we started to show success, uh, people said, I'd like more of that, you know, could you work with us? So we've grown now, last time I was here, we were about six people, and now we're 106, um, and we have offices in London and Brussels and Warsaw. We have uh, lawyers on uh, five African countries. Uh, last week we opened an office in Beijing, and a little before that uh, in New York. So we are really uh, working globally now, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little while, because I think that um, in order to progress the use of law uh, for helping people and the environment, we now need to think globally together. Um, and environmental law is still really relatively new. It was in the early 70s uh, in the United States that the great environmental laws were passed, and then uh, not long after that, in Australia and Europe, the, the uh, great law started to be passed. But that's very recently uh, for a body of law that is meant to um, capture uh, the vision of a culture in how we relate to all living systems. Perhaps the most important body of law, uh, but the newest, uh, and as Martin writes in the book very well, I think, uh, one of the most fragile because it's new and because it's constantly under threat from interests that environmental law seeks to regulate. Um, so uh, I'll get back to the global thing in a minute, but in, in Europe, uh, the way um, we're doing law there for the planet is uh, to work at the whole spectrum of law. Alessandro mentioned bringing cases. Bringing cases is very important. <coughs> and it's always the most fun to talk about, I mean, because it's kind of, you know, it's warfare, and it's, it's really, uh, it, it's exciting, and uh, uh, we, we can talk about that, particularly in questions and answers, if you like, and I'm a litigator, so I really like suing anybody. Uh, <laughs> I try and pick my targets carefully, and you're all safe, you know. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> uh, but that's kind of the end of the process. So uh, if you're trying to help society move forward uh, in its relationship with de defending uh, 
the rights of nature and people, uh, you want to help build the law as well. So uh, in order to build the law, we always start with science. And getting back to the name client Earth, uh, if the Earth is my client, as I try to make real, um, how do you talk to your client? A lawyer has to talk to the client and has to listen to what the client needs. If my client is the Earth, the way I do that uh, is by listening to the science. So uh, in my mind, science is the grammar uh, through which the Earth can tell the legal system how it needs to change uh, in order to protect. So uh, one of the very first things we worked on in, in the uh, client Earth office was fisheries because they were under great threat and the European fisheries law was about to be reauthorized. So uh, what we did is we sat down with fisheries scientists and said, what do the seas need? Uh, in order to get stable fish populations for 100 years, uh, what should the law do? That's one example, but we do that everywhere. I was working with uh, climate scientists uh, 12 years ago as I was thinking about this, and I said, if I have very small, which I always will compared to um, other interests in the world, very small resources, what would be the most valuable thing I could do in order to stop climate change? And some of the scientists were very, very clear. Uh, and again, I started with the scientists. And they said, stop new coal-fired power stations. I said, okay. Uh, so my climate program, one very small people, uh, group of people, was to pick coal-fired power stations in Europe and try and prevent them from happening. And when we only had like 10 people, we stopped a whole, or with campaigners, stopped a whole new generation of coal-fired power stations in the UK, which is now committed to not building anymore, and then set up an office in Poland because Poland was trying to perfectly recreate the Soviet energy policies of the 1950s, <laughs> uh, even the number of plants. Uh, so we, we said no, but we said no with Polish lawyers. So um, one of the things I learned was that uh, coming from the US where you're in one big system, uh, in the EU with 28 countries, uh, you have to work uh, more regionally. Uh, you have to work in each country's uh, legal system. So we have lawyers now from, from 16 countries. Uh, and that campaign in Poland was also very successful, and we can get into it later. Lots of litigation, the government fighting us, the Treasury Secretary, who's also the head of the Secret Service, uh, <laughs> <laughs> saying that uh, we're enemies of the state. Uh, and then he also, by the way, in that press conference said, uh, client Earth is a bad enemy to have. Uh, so I went, uh, I went back to my board and said, look, you know, our, our tagline is, uh, well, it's not up there now, client Earth justice for the planet. I said, I like it, I wrote it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it would be better if it was client Earth, a bad enemy to have. <laughs> you know, people would really listen. They said, we get it, but. You know. uh, anyway, so we start with the science. And from listening to the science, I created the uh, anti-coal program, which has been enormously successful. None of those coal-fired power stations eight years later have been built in Poland, despite uh, the fact that Poland's addiction to coal is rather similar uh, uh, culturally to uh, Australia's, or like Britain's was in the 1930s and 1940s. So starting with the science, and then you write policy. So how do you take the science and translate it into ideas that can come out of the realm of scientists uh, into the realm of policymakers? So you help write the policy, then you go to the legislature and you try and take that policy and craft laws. You actually write laws. Uh, and those laws need to be ones that make sense to the regulated communities so that they'll agree, even if reluctantly, to uh, oblige themselves to uh, comply. And the regulators 
uh, need to be able to understand them, and they need to be implementable. Uh, one of the things I learned in the common fisheries policy was that that policy was so complicated that even uh, fishers uh, who wanted to comply couldn't because there was a thousand page rule book and they're out on the sea going up and down on the boat going through and they said, look, come on, <laughs> you know, help us out here. So we said, okay, let's help you out. And in writing that legislation, you work with everybody. You work with all of the other NGOs. Uh, you talk to industry and see if you can find sweet spots. Sometimes you can. There's a lot of progressive industry you can work with. And you work with governments. When I got to uh, Brussels, the, uh, one of the first people I went to meet was the head of the uh, Environment Committee in the Parliament. And he said, I'm delighted that uh, you're trying to bring this world-class law to help write legislation, because we're writing them in Parliament, but we don't have lawyers to help us, uh, uh, amazingly. Uh, and the uh, NGO community doesn't have any lawyers who can do it. So what I get is uh, we have a draft bill, and then I get BMW coming in. Uh, or one of the other big German car companies, or an equivalent uh, entity. And they produce 350 pages of amendments to the bill, and they explain why it's good for BMW, why it's good for Germany, why it's good for the EU, and why it's good for the world. And, you know, they're really well drafted. And on the other side, I have campaigners who can be brilliant and passionate, but talk in very general terms. Uh, and I don't have the capacity to take their general ideas and to compete with that 350 pages of, of legal work by the big companies. So if you could do that, it would help me a lot. And then we'd have a balance, and then we could have a fair fight. So we spent a lot of time uh, helping the in, uh, enlightened politicians um, to create a situation where we get a, a fair fight between the uh, interests of the environment and people on one side and, and corporate interests on the other. The next stage is then implementing the law uh, try and make the laws work. Uh, and what I found in Europe was that the NGOs didn't concentrate on actually making the laws work. So uh, what happens then is that you have a laws passed uh, and uh, that companies then know exactly how they would like the law to be understood, which is to not apply very much at all. Uh, and if they're only the only ones who are lobbying for this, that is what inevitably happens because tremendous momentum moves against the, the law even if it was a very good law, it may wind up meaning nothing. So we spend a lot of time then pressing in the other direction, uh, either forcing, embarrassing, or sometimes helping uh, good administrations to figure out how to implement the law. And then finally, we get to the fun part, which is litigation. Um, and uh, you need to uh, enforce the law against uh, actors who are reluctant to comply, whether that's companies uh, or, or governments. So we've taken governments to court, and uh, we took the UK government to court over air pollution, um, because throughout Europe, and the UK was a good target because it was my first office, uh, and because they say good things about themselves. Uh, <laughs> but they, uh, 40,000 people a year were dying of air pollution, uh, dying early of air pollution in the UK. So, um, so we brought them to court, took it all the way through the Supreme Court, and we got the very first environmental injunction from the Supreme Court of the UK in its history. Uh, and now we're seeking to enforce the injunction because the government is still being reluctant. So none of this stuff is easy. You know, it's, uh, it's not a quick win. You have to be decided, you have to be um, uh, tough and patient, you know, and get up in the morning and say, I'm going to continue this fight. Because the government's refusing to comply little by little with the Supreme Court's order. We've been back to court twice. A new minister came in, and he invited me into a meeting uh, about three, four weeks ago, 
and said, uh, okay, James, I'm a new minister. We've just come out with a new plan at your insistence uh, and the injunction. Now, you're probably not going to like it, but what do I have to do so that you don't sue me again? <laughs> that was progress. Uh, and I said, Michael, to the minister, Michael, you, uh, probably I will sue you again. But, uh, <laughs> but we're having a very friendly conversation today, and it, we, can, we can have an equally friendly conversation after I see you, uh, with a, sl a slightly different context, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but let's keep talking, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I mentioned litigation in Poland. One of the really, really interesting uh, things for me has been uh, eye-opening uh, in, uh, in China. Um, and uh, before I get to China, in Africa, uh, we've been building the capacity of, um, of African uh, uh, groups, uh, NGOs, and um, building, trying to build basic democracy around forestry issues. Um, and we've been doing that for five years now, and it's been a fascinating process of understanding, uh, and I don't understand all the complex land rights issues in Australia, but I know a little bit more than I did now about the complex lands rights uh, in Africa, because you have ancient tribal rights overlain with um, a much more modern law, and the question is how it all fits together in such a way that uh, forest-dependent communities can fight for their rights and participate in decisions about the forests. And we're making progress, but I'm, I'm learning a lot about how you work in such an arena. And then in 2014, I was invited into China, uh, and uh, uh, China had just passed a law uh, saying that Chinese NGOs, so environmental groups, were going to be able to sue polluting companies uh, for the first time, something we can do in many Western countries, but not in China. And that included companies owned by the state. Uh, so uh, this was a, a big deal. And I was invited in to address members of the Chinese Supreme Court who were writing regulations about how the lawsuits would actually work. And they said, we'd like to talk to you because you've done this in North America and you've done it in Europe. You sue governments and companies and you win. So tell us what to do. Uh, we want this system to work. I said, wow, that's really great. And um, I said, um, you know, but before I get into my seminar, uh, why, why are you doing this? It's, it's such a revolution. And they said, hmm, revolution is a big word for us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we, we had a very good laugh. Uh, and they said, they said, maybe think of it as a sea change. So, I said, uh, so we, we, we talked about it. But they co have completely understood. Uh, now I've worked with officials at the Ministry of Environmental Protection, senior people in the Congress, and so on. And they really have gotten uh, the idea uh, firmly in place as policy now that uh, they screwed the environment and they need to uh, both clean up the environment and be perceived as working to clean up the environment if they're going to keep the, uh, a stable peace uh, in the country. So that's a, it's a great motivator and it's really enlightened self-interest. Um, and what's interesting then about this uh, new law is that it does let NGOs sue polluting companies. Uh, I worked with them on the regulations, um, and uh, in the year that it's been uh, now running, uh, these Chinese NGOs, compared to Australia or any Western country, are tiny, you know, and very underfunded, even though they tend to be underfunded everywhere, including here. But these are really underfunded, and they've nevertheless uh, managed to bring something like 80 cases against polluting companies. Um, about half of them have already been decided, all in favor of the plaintiffs. Um, and because I helped write the regulations, in every one of the cases, they got all of their attorney's fees and costs and everything so that they can go and to bring the next case. And then the Supreme Court asked uh, me to, asked us to start training judges. 
so that they could learn to make uh, decisions. And I said, I'm willing to do that, but how shall I start? And they said, with us, and I and really the Supreme Court. And they said, yes. So we've now been training uh, Chinese Supreme Court judges on environmental decision making. And I've done that by bringing in Western experts from Australia, the United States, the EU, uh, to give seminars on how cases are decided and how the various legal systems cope with things, whether good or bad, because we don't always do everything perfectly by any means, uh, to have a very open discussion about how things could work in China now that you're uh, uh, interested in doing it. And after our first training for 300 judges, uh, the federal prosecutor's office called up and uh, said, we hear what you're doing with uh, the judges. And the same law that allows NGOs to sue companies has given us, the prosecutors, as I knew, uh, the right to sue the central government for the first time about the environment on behalf of the people. So the prosecutor from uh, you know, Yunnan you know, can sue the Ministry of Environment if it's not, for example, enforcing air quality law now. And they, uh, they came to us and they said, you're pr we, we see that you're pretty good at suing governments. Uh, we've never done that. So uh, can you train us how to sue the Chinese government? Uh, and we said, sure, what fun that is. You know? so, uh, so we invited the prosecutors and, and members of the Supreme Court uh, you know, and, uh, uh, and so on. And we've had these very open seminars now about, about how this works. And those prosecutors have gone on in the last year or so to bring something like uh, 40 cases against central government on behalf of people's environmental rights, and they're winning them as well. So uh, what uh, I'm, I'm very excited to see is this sea change um, happening, and uh, the vision that is connected to. You know, in that uh, I've been doing environmental work for a long time now, um, since the 70s, and one of the things I felt uh, all along uh, was that I and most other environmentalists focus so much of our attention on what's wrong um, that people get depressed, you know, and I read an environmental book, uh, and I, even I get I learned stuff, but I get depressed by it. So Martin's written a book, which if you read it, you'll see is actually the opposite. It gets you full of hope. Uh, but one of the reasons uh, it does that is it offers you stories about things that have actually worked. And for a long time, I've been thinking, what sort of story can we tell um, as a culture uh, that allows people to have the hope that we need to motivate action, to move in the direction of changing the law, changing the culture, uh, which we can do. There's absolutely no doubt. If we go in the current path, everyone knows, go off the cliff, rather like Brexit in my home country of the UK, off, and we're moving off. Um, but uh, <laughs> the Paris Agreement hope is a great beginning for hopefully not moving off when it comes to climate, but much, much more needs to be done. And what is that positive image that can motivate us all to do all of the things we need to do under the Paris Agreement and on and on and on. And the interesting thing f in that respect about working in China is that the Chinese have been working on this same question. How do we imagine uh, a culture uh, in a positive way that we can create together, uh, that we can co-create? And they've come up with what intrigues me very much, and the idea is uh, ecological civilization. And they say, and Martin writes about it beautifully in the book, they say, look, uh, there was uh, hunter and gatherer civilization, agricultural civilization, industrial civilization, uh, and now we need to imagine uh, an ecological civilization which 2,000 years from now will allow people to be uh, uh, living safely and harmoniously with natural systems. 
And they said that comes easy for us because we've been together for 2,500 years as a culture and actually we've been centrally managed for 2,500 years and interestingly they said the Communist Party is kind of the flavor of the day. Uh, we'll always be centrally managed, whatever it turns into, but we want to be here in 2,000 years and we want to be healthy in 2,000 years as, as a culture. So uh, they've broken down the concept of ecological civilization into eight different parts like industrial policy, economics, agricultural policy, and law, interestingly. So they asked me to be on a panel that advises the Politburo, um, and together with other Western experts and Chinese experts, and we spent a year and a half coming up with a report on how to build the rule of law, and you need to do a lot of building the rule of law in China. I'm, I'm not an apologist for China. Uh, you need to do a lot there. But how uh, conceptually would it look to build the rule of law to allow an ecological civilization to, to come up, and we made recommendations. But what's very different from what's happening in Paris or Canberra or Washington or uh, London is that in China now, the government is uh, sincerely dedicated to making environmental shift, and most of the members of the Politburo are engineers. So they're very non-ideological, and once they decide there's a problem, they want to address it. And they've, by coming up with this ecological civilization concept, uh, and breaking it down into these components, they then assigned hundreds of their best intellectuals to study what do we need to do uh, if we're going to beat climate change and be here in 2,000 years in terms of agricultural policy, industrial policy, energy policy, law. And uh, that's exciting to me because you know, we're, we're missing the beat in, in most, uh, most Western countries uh, and in none has there been that level of motivation. Now where it leads us, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if... Uh, if the end vision is uh, a really compelling one, and we'll see if so whether they can manage to make it real. But the aspiration, I think, is marvelous. And what keeps me going in all of the work is, is the aspiration. So of getting up in the morning and saying, I can contribute personally uh, as just one guy uh, to trying to make the world a better place. Um, and really that's what the work is all about. Thanks. Thank you. Hello. Uh, we were delighted to get the invitation to come and visit you in Sydney, and we've made a meal of it. We actually came a month ago. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we went first of all up to um, northern Queensland and to the Daintree River and the Daintree Rainforest. We went to the Atherton Tablelands, looking for birds all the time, meeting the crocodiles on the river. We went out snorkeling on the, uh, the Great Barrier Reef. We've been circling Uluru a number of times, uh, meeting birds along the way. We came back into Kayama and took a pelagic trip out into the sea, which happens every fourth Saturday of, of, of the year. So take a chance. It's wonderful to go out and meet albatrosses in the, in the sheer waters. And, uh, and um, then we went down to an event in Hobart, went up um, Mount Wellington and out to the Tasmanian Devil Un Zoo to walk amongst um, kangaroos and... Uh, and uh, and, and meet the Tasmanian devil. And this is a, a large part of actually James's way of balancing his own life. He calls it visiting his client. And, uh, <laughs> and for me, it's, it is very important to actually break from the concrete surrounds and the, the, the everyday needs of life to actually remember 
who we're a part of. So that's part of it all. And I, I spoke with James's parents uh, about James's early years, and they spoke about going extraordinarily patiently on walks with James through a forest when he was a tiny little kid, because every few inches he'd stop and ask them to sit and look at this new wonder he had found. And James would have really liked to have grown up to be an entomologist, I think, and to study spiders. But he reckoned early on that if I do that, there will be fewer and fewer spider species for me to spend time with. He just saw the, the, that planetary structure crumbling. So he decided, I've got to do something about it. What he decided he could do about it was study the law, because law would give him the tools with which to work to affect change. And uh, I was very struck on that little film you heard before, uh, 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 the, uh, the young lady there who was talking about everything being hopeless, and she feels hopeless. So what I want to address a little bit here is this part of a non-lawyer who wrote this book, and, um, and how I've come out of it, and, and how you can move out of hopelessness, because I think that's an important element. And so I chose not to become a lawyer. I wondered about it, um, but I didn't want to read all those texts. I, I, so I, <laughs> I just became a writer. So one of the things I've done, of course, is, is write a book. I went in with the determination to write a positive story, because I feel that's what we need. And I was a little doubtful going into it, because I had various doubts. I knew corruption was there in China. I knew that if we stopped you know, a power plants in Poland, um, then China would build another three that week. But all of, all of those various reasons to sort of give up hope and, and stop trying. But I found all of these lawyers working hard. I also found a broader network of people. So it was activists, it was philanthropists, it was politicians, and, um, and it, it was investors, many of these people. So part of my little role was to own a share of BP and own a share of, of Shell and go to the investors' meetings and, 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 and join in um, uh, uh, voter resolutions to change the nature of those companies. So that was that little mite of something one can do. And uh, beyond that, um, what, a couple of things that really struck me was when I went out to meet these lawyers in Poland that James was telling you about. And when James, well really it's that advanced thinking, that strategic thinking of lawyers that impresses me enormously. So James was, you know, age whatever he was, eight, <laughs> deciding to become a lawyer. And uh, there, were no, there weren't environmental lawyers there. And when he graduated, he then taught the first environmental law course ever. You know, he, the thing, well, I, I had to use law somehow, and, I had, and it had to be environmental law, and we had to forge the way. The main um, sense of the environmental, public interest environmental law group came into being, which is what Clyde Earth is, came into be and, and, and EDO, came into being in the States in the 1970s um, under Richard Nixon. It's surprising, but this raft of astonishing laws came into being then. And at the same time, they set up the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which um, was there to make sure those laws worked, they regulated those laws. But then, these lawyers decided, okay, we now need public interest law groups, because everything's hunky-dory at the moment. And what happens if governments change? Governments no, want, no longer want to enforce these laws. And uh, so they formed themselves into being. So James was part of this uh, organization called NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. In 1984, Ronald Reagan, Reagan came into power. He uh, appointed Anne Gorsuch, the, uh, the mother of the new Supreme Court judge in, in the States, to head the EPA on the condition that she would agree to bringing it to its knees, which she agreed to do. 
So there was the Clean Water Act, which allowed um, the citizens to, um, to actually regulate um, the, the laws if they weren't being regulated. So James formed a one-man band, one-man one and a scientist band uh, under NRDC, a Citizens Enforcement Act. Um, I tell one really exciting story in the book when he takes on this guy called Big Ham, who's the, you know, the meat industry, uh, uh, all the way through to the Supreme Court. And, uh, well, I t won't tell you whether he won or not. You've got to <laughs> I won't, won't do a spoiler. Um, <laughs> but he did. Oh, spoiler, spoiler comes. <laughs> <laughs> he took on 60 cases simultaneously in the federal courts and won every one of them. There were over 100 cases that he, that, that he took on before he moved on and won every one of those until the EPA was shamed back into regulating. Then, then the wondrous guy who'd set up the EPA initially um, was brought back and brought James in to teach his enforcers how to enforce because they'd, they'd lost that. But that's a little story about what one little guy can do if the law is there and on your side. So one of the things then, I, I went to um, Poland and met the, met the lawyers there. And for the first time, I found that these, Pol the, these Polish lawyers were not just there about stopping these power plants, which they have done. There would have been power plants, had the, you know, new coal-fired power plants, for the next 40-odd years. They would have been invested in coal in the future if these lawyers hadn't come there and worked out an intricate policy against everyone. But I found them saying that what they're really wanting to do is build civil society. From Britain, I'd never heard from the lawyers or anyone. I'd never really heard that term used. It was really uh, alive for these lawyers. I went and sat with, um, with Polish farmers and farmers' wives all, all around their farmers' table with their cakes and their, and, and, and their juices. And, and they told me how lawyers had come in and changed them. So it was a small, a small stakeholder group. And lawyers had come in and met them. They'd previously gone to meetings, asked their questions, and felt stupid because their questions weren't voiced correctly. So lawyers had come in and helped them form the grammar and, and know how to language their requests. So suddenly they found themselves being answered. And then there was this courtroom in Gdansk with 70 farmers in it. And apparently it, it was February, it was hot, it was steamy, it was quite a rank st storeroom. And the three judges looked up and were astonished to see all of these citizens there. And these citizens were then duly astonished to see that the courts held in their favor and stopped the, um, stopped the, stopped the progression of this power plant because they realized that they hadn't actually taken the stakeholders' opinions into, into account. So that was a powerful thing. It was powerful for me to then go to Africa, to Ghana, where the lawyers are working with civil activists. So first of all, they'd worked out to dig up all of the laws. They'd, 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 They'd hand-printed their own little book called, they called it, the, the people there called it their Green Bible, which has the customary laws, the stool laws, the statutory laws, all the different forms of laws were brought out into the air for the first time. And I went and was, take, was part of a, a training session. Every month, activists come in. These aren't lawyers, but they're, they're, they're learning to understand the laws and how they apply. And they told me that now they go to meetings with government officials. And previously, government officials would, would talk about the law, bring in the law, and it would kill the meeting. Now the government officials bring in the law and it ignites the meeting. These activists are just so enthused and empowered and, and it's the government officials that, that are then scuttling away to, to find out what else to do. So I realize that's important for us. It's actually important for us to learn what these laws are. In writing this book, I was meeting with commissioners. I, I suddenly realized that there was Birds Habitats Directive and uh, Birds Directive, Habitats Directive, Natural 2000 sites. So much that was, was actually giving me the fabric uh, uh, of my life that I didn't really understand. And I realized that not understanding the laws that are around is 
was my failing. It was my taking civil society for granted. Take it for granted and it can go. Because as James was saying, these, even these environmental laws, they're young and they're vulnerable. If you don't pay attention to them, they wither and they die. So that attention is good. Making sure that, it, that your, um, your officials and uh, your elected officials all know, that know the importance of these laws. And we need to bring the environment up our own political agendas so that, so that everybody knows it, it matters in a, in a very real way. So those things are, are I think, very important for me and, and part of that that combating hopelessness. One of the other things I suppose I found through this book on that, and how, how do you combat hopelessness, is that I was not really wanting to look at the problems that we had. There, the fishes were going from our seas, and I didn't want to know about it. I didn't want to read another environmental book because it told me the problem was worse than I even knew, and it explained it in greater detail. And it was always, I just came, came away ever more desperate. And, uh, but now I find, um, and, and James actually 10 years ago was quite despairing. I've just seen him grow in confidence more and more. As, as, as he said, okay, here is an insoluble problem, let's solve it, <laughs> you know, and then come up with a solution. So I, I'm finding that I'm empowered by that, so that I can go out to northern Queensland and, um, and see these rainforest birds, and not just be bewailing the fact that they are disappearing. And, uh, but also that... If I'm in a problem, like if I'm buying a house, I know I need a solicitor. And uh, if I was getting divorced, I would know I would need a solicitor. There's some problems that I just see as intractable. And for me, the, environmental, the environment was an intractable problem. Now I see that there are these environmental law groups who are there to help us solve those problems. So we're not alone. We're in a situation where we do need lawyers and... Um, and they can give us back that hope. If you've got hope, then you can actually go out and look at these situations and work out, uh, um, first of all, what's, what's the baseline? Where are the dangers? What can I appreciate and then also maybe protect? And then how can the law help me? I can't, we can't all learn the law. No, there, are, there are experts in that. But we can all see that the law work, helps us out. Um, one, of the thing, one of the beings that we met when we were up in Queensland after a quest all over, over the place for a number of days was a cassowary. So this, this wondrous cassowary came, came to not quite meet us, but um, eat nearby. And uh, so this, this is a creature that's been a part of the rainforest for millions of years. He's, he's an enormous part of all of our heritage. And he's been doing his bit. Um, he's, this is a male that we were seeing. No, he's been eating the fruits and, and, and germinating the fruits so the, the fruit trees spread throughout the forest. He is why the forest exists. And this was a 40-year-old bird, uh, a direct link to the, to the dinosaurs. You can even see the evolution of dinosaurs through this, the creature's great claws, looking after its three chicks, because um, the male is the one that fosters and trains these little chicks. So for 40 years, this has been doing that. We were told that none of these chicks are likely to survive because there is not enough rainforest. So one of the things that I find that we can do is just dare to go out there and meet a casualty and, and, and see what its needs are and know that every acre that, that, that gets chopped down is taking away its habitat. It's doing its best to keep that habitat alive. Um, but we can be alert to it. So I think just daring to appreciate and protect and be alert and be able to take the Earth's thing, you know, 
to, to the lawyers, to, to, to alert the lawyers to the client's needs is important, because we, we're all in this together. And it's beautiful to be in this room together with you, and it's over, I think, now to Alessandro to open us up to questions, because we'd like to know what, what concerns you. But thank you very much for coming. <laughs> Well, thank you, James, and thank you, Martin, for painting this atmosphere of hope. Prior to coming into um, the, the room, Martin and I were joking because humorous, humorously in the book, Martin writes, um, I'm British, I do not enthuse lightly. <laughs> <laughs> and I retorted that I'm Italian, I only enthuse lightly. <laughs> but even with this high enthusiasm threshold, I think you've really, um, really brought enthusiasm to me. Um, with your presentation. So I think we can now open it up uh, to the floor for questions. We do have two microphones, numbered one and two. So if I can ask actually members of the audience to uh, approach the two microphones. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for your talk and thank you so much for your work. You can see it's very important. We're, we're very encouraged by that. Um, I guess the question is, um, so much of your work is kind of confronting industry uh, and kind of taking them on through the law. Uh, have you had any luck or any success sort of working with the industries and kind of pitching it to them. This is in your interest to kind of protect these ecosystems and um, sort of pitching it to them that way. Has, it, has that started, sort of worked at all? It, it, it does work and it's a very important part of it. And uh, I probably didn't emphasize that enough because I, I always get on to the, the fighting bit. Uh, <laughs> but but, uh, but, but it's, it's really important. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Um, you know, we helped write a, a law in Brussels that applies to Europe about keeping illegally harvested timber from coming into the European market. Uh, and then we've been involved in writing the regulations under that law. And in doing that, um, we've sat down with all the industry groups that are involved uh, and said, here's our understanding. What are your actual day-to-day -day problems? You know, how can you relate to this? You know, and how can we write regulations that meet your needs and meet the needs of the law? That's one example. In the, um, in the fisheries uh, uh, area that I mentioned briefly before, uh, we worked uh, really closely with uh, a number of fisheries groups you know, throughout Europe, again, to understand the, the needs of the people who do this for a living. And um, my instruction to my team was, uh, I'm not trying to protect uh, fish from people. What I'm trying to do is protect the fish people system so that um, there are fish in 100 years and there are fishermen in 100 years. So, uh, and in order to do that, you need to talk to the, to the fishermen. Um, and still, still on fish, we put together a, a voluntary consortium, uh, which is now, I think, 90% of uh, all of the, uh, starting with the UK, and then I hope we'll go out, 90% um, of all the seafood uh, that is sold in the UK, uh, those um, companies are now in a voluntary group with us. Um, and the idea there, it's been going on for three years, is to go beyond the legal requirements uh, and set a new standard for sustainability and uh, fair labeling and accurate labeling. And we've made great progress in that. And that's, that's been really encouraging. Um, you know, in uh, a lot of the work we do in climate is now, uh, and there's been some great work here uh, in, 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 in using the law, uh, company law. Uh, there's an important lawsuit brought in Australia recently. But um, we're trying to get uh, the uh, pension funds, for example, the superannuity funds uh, in the UK uh, and then elsewhere to take account of climate change risk uh, in their investment decisions. Uh, and the way we've done that is to do it in a very friendly way uh, by saying, here are the risks that you, as the head of a pension fund, may um, face uh, if you don't do this. And simultaneously, we're working with pension fund members to actually create those risks. But in the... 
But we're doing it in a very friendly way with the progressive companies, and the smart progressive companies are saying, oh, right, good idea. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Hi. Um, I'd just like to ask, uh, with Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement and also underfunding the EPA, how much of an influence is that going to have globally? That's a, it's a great question, and um, I'll tell you some of the global answers I've been picking up. Um, you know, I was in a meeting in Paris uh, shortly after that, uh, um, and uh, we had uh, French President Macron um, addressing the meeting, uh, and he said it had only redoubled his efforts. Um, and uh, then we had Arnold Schwarzenegger address the meeting, uh, and uh, although we think of him as a, a Republican Terminator type guy, uh, and yeah, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but he, uh, on the environment, he's very good. And he stood up and he said, uh, people say to me, Arnie, why, uh, why are you in favor of the environment and stopping climate change? Uh, and he says, I say, like, you think the environment is conservative or progressive? You know, it's the environment, you know? Um, and uh, there was um, uh, a meeting shortly after Trump pulled us out of most of the other countries, and they all agreed that they were going to keep their commitments no matter what. Um, and the day after Trump, uh, announced that he was going to pull us out. Uh, the um, governor of California flew to Beijing to make an agreement between Beijing and California. Uh, 38 American states, last I counted, have, now have said that they are going to themselves meet the Paris Agreement. Uh, and those states are almost all of the American economy when you add it up. So, uh, you know, the ironic thing is that people like Trump have been saying there's no need for a central government. You know, let everything be done by the states. And he's actually offering the opportunity. So, uh, <laughs> so I take great encouragement from that. You know, I think, uh, in a funny way, um, it's very hard to get climate change on anyone's agenda, and he made it the number one issue uh, for, for a period of time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in today. Um, I've noticed all of your stories were at the domestic level in terms of environmental litigation. Yeah. What role do you see as environment, uh, international environmental law, law in providing the leadership in this issue? A uh, couple of different things. It's, it's difficult to bring ca uh, meaningful cases at an international level uh, because most, uh, most international law is what uh, one calls soft law. I have brought, uh, the fir very first three cases I brought uh, were nevertheless uh, before an international tribunal under a, a treaty called the Aarhus Convention, uh, and that it has a very good tribunal that sits in Geneva. And when countries, and there are 48 or 49 countries, have signed up to this treaty, and all the EU countries did, uh, they promised to give their citizens access to environmental information, uh, the rights to participate in environmental decision-making, and access to justice, which shall not be prohibitively expensive. Now, uh, the EU itself, Germany, and the UK, I thought, we're not giving uh, appropriate access to justice. So the very first thing we did back when we had about four people uh, was to bring cases against the UK, Germany, and the EU in this international tribunal. We won them all. Um, and then those three countries, uh, the, those two countries rather, Germany and the UK, made enormous changes. Um, and the EU is reluctant about it, uh, but I hope, I hope we'll get there. So that was the one time I found it was really important. But in terms, uh, as, uh, in terms of bringing a case, but in terms of setting the uh, global agenda, in unbelievably important. So um, the Paris Agreement, I honestly believe, is a true turning point in the history of humanity. That getting that agreement was the hardest thing, I think, that human beings have ever done. Uh, and it's deeply meaningful. And now the question, as always, is implementation. Uh. 
Thank you. Hi. Um, you said you'd been here for about a month, and presumably you've been seeing what's been happening with environmental law in Australia. Have you got any thoughts on that? From my perspective, there seems to have been some backsliding in the last few years, and I wondered if you had thoughts on it and, I don't know, hints of what we can do. Backsliding in terms of government behavior, or? Yes. Yes, uh, I, I'm not, I have to say, an expert on uh, Australian environmental law. I have been talking to Australian environmental lawyers and, of course, reading the papers. And it strikes me that there are, uh, that there has been important uh, uh, backsliding. I mean, now this is something that you see going on. So we had the revolution in environmental law, if I can use that word, uh, in the US in the early 70s, more like the 80s in the uh, EU and Australia. And in all of those places, there's been a pushback. You know, the companies have gotten very sophisticated. They were kind of taken off guard almost, you know, when the great laws were passed. And there's been a pushback, and so now there, there has to be a, a fight back. And you have conservative governments uh, here in the United States and um, more and more um, in the EU. Uh, they're open to the arguments of, of the companies. But, you know, specific things like opening up more of the Coral Sea to uh, another 20% to fishing and saying it's a, a commercial fishing is inherently a sustainable activity, which uh, Mr. Finkelman did recently, doesn't make any sense to me at all. You know, and having the um, uh, you know, um, uh, energy uh, uh, targets um, be uh, something that the Prime Minister is willing to say. You know, the, the chief government scientist, uh, Finkel, was saying that we need to do these 50 things in order to get um, the energy transition targets in place. And to have the uh, Prime Minister respond by saying, um, that's all very well, and I can support them as long as I can build new coal-fired power stations. Um, you know, just doesn't make any sense. Um, what, what can we do about it? Um, you know, I think, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, uh, there's a tradition of really world-class environmental law um, experts in Australia, which is an unbelievably great resource. They're very underfunded. Um, they're partly underfunded because uh, the, a lot of the funding initially for the environmental <coughs> Defender's offices was government funding, uh, and it's been cut. Um, so they've had to start raising uh, money as, as charities over the last five years or so, as I understand it. Um, that's a difficult thing to do, and it's particularly a difficult thing to do if it's a new model for you. I grew up having to do that uh, in the organizations I was working in. But they could really use help. Uh, and they, uh, if, if we could find the resources to support them, uh, they could do much more than they have current capacity to do. Uh, in terms of fighting this pushback, uh, in terms of helping to draft new legislation, uh, in terms of working with activists uh, in order to create that positive vision. So I, I would urge you to, to support, the, um, if I can use that word, uh, indigenous environmental law experts here. I think there's one more question. Thank you for your inspiring work. There are obviously so many fights that, that need to be fought around the world, you urgently need to clone yourselves. <laughs> um, and I'd be interested in the process, how you rank and prioritise which fights you're going to attack in any particular year. One particular area I'm interested in is, have you had any forays into the travesty of the palm oil industry and the denudation of the rainforest and the orangutan territory? Yes. Um, and the answer to answer the last part of your question first is, not yet. Uh, and I'm looking for a way in. Um, but uh, how do I rank it? Well, I, um, you know, I have to be very practical about it. And when I started 10 years ago, uh, I was talking with Alessandra earlier, for the first couple of years, uh, I, my budget was $30,000. Um, and you know, then, then it went up to 100,000 and so on, gradually. And uh, what you have to do is to um, 
uh, find things that you can do with the resources that you have. And the resources have been very limited until now. Now they're growing, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that global issue in a, in a second. Um, so uh, one of the reasons I brought those three cases and the international treaty body was uh, I thought it could help change the legal systems of, of these uh, European countries in such a way that would benefit every citizen and every NGO. Uh, if they had greater access to justice, it was a, it was a total benefit for everybody. Uh, uh, so it was very high leverage. Uh, it was something that um, where I, I couldn't be held accountable for cost if I lost because of the way it worked, and I had no money to be held accountable for cost. Um, and, um, and I thought, uh, given that the organization at that point was so very tiny, if uh, the very first action we did was to beat the UK, Germany, and the EU uh, in front of the UN, then people would take notice. Uh, and that worked. Um, so uh, that was a, a strategy about how you could do that. And then uh, how to rank things. Again, it was by talking with scientists, largely by studying a lot of science. Um, and I did it uh, with a blank sheet of paper beginning 12 years ago for two years before I opened the office. But um, what was interesting is that then the uh, program I came out with, uh, which is uh, trying to help stop climate change, uh, trying to protect people's health, for example, air pollution and toxic substances, um, trying to protect forests, uh, trying to generally protect biodiversity, so terrestrial and uh, biodiversity in the sea, uh, and then working on uh, increasing access to justice. That last one is an unusual one. Most environmental organizations don't work on trying to increase access to justice and uh, increase citizens' ability to get information and be empowered. But the other ones are really very much the, uh, the program areas that the major conservation groups have. But I wanted to start with, uh, with a blank uh, page, and, and I did wind up there. And then within each one, uh, I looked at, OK, the geography I started out working in is, is Europe. What's my highest leverage thing with the resources I have to protect biodiversity in Europe? And again, talking to scientists, uh, that at the beginning was working on the common fisheries policy. Because European fisheries, uh, scientists said, would crash in the next 10 years and maybe never come back unless the law was deeply improved. Um, and I said, OK, I'll try to make sure that the law is that much better. And we got that law. Now, again, it's back to implementation. Um, and I, I mentioned uh, on climate change with very limited resources. I figured uh, that if we could st start stopping Europe from building any new coal-fired power stations, then Europe could actually be the force uh, in the world that it claimed to be. Uh, we would hold Europe to its aspirations of being a leader on climate change. Uh, and that's working. Uh, but we're stopping the plants. Getting Europe to behave is not always easy. Um, in, um, and then back to China. You know, I waited for an opportunity to try and do something in China because the, uh, it has been the world's biggest polluter. Um, it still is. Um, and uh, because now with the right intention and with a centralized government, it seemed to me that with very limited resources, uh, I could maybe make a, a big difference there. And that's, that's seeming to be true. And uh, to contrast the experiences, <coughs> it takes a lot more energy, money, people, resources to go to court and try and force the UK reluctantly to clean <coughs> up the air so its citizens don't die from air pollution. Whereas in Beijing, they're saying, please give us any advice you can on how to get there quickly. So with, uh, uh, instead of fighting Western governments, you know, to cooperate with a government that really wants to do the right things um, is a very good use of resources, very, very high leverage. So what I'm always looking at is, uh, what are the worst problems uh, that can be addressed by law, because not every problem can be, 
Um, my trustees were asking recently, for example, why don't you work on um, population issues because isn't overpopulation along with uh, uh, the inequality of resource dis distribution, a genuine problem. I said, I agree it's a genuine problem, but I don't see how it's a problem that uh, you know, uh, an NGO uh, can really address uh, with the legal tools that we have. Um, so it has to be a genuine problem, something that can be addressed by law, and uh, something um, that isn't already being done very well by somebody else, because there are a lot of great people uh, doing good things. Um, and then where there's a form where I can actually work, because you can want to do something, but unless there's a practical place where you can go to lobby or to write law or to make your arguments in front of a judge, uh, these are different places where you can go to make a difference. And unless there is one for the problem you're looking at, and there isn't always, then again, it's not a good use of resources. So, so it's a kind of complex calculus, but as you start playing with it, it becomes obvious. You know, it's just a very pragmatic thing of, uh, where can I make the biggest difference with the tools I have for the biggest problems? We have time for one final quick question. Right. First of all, thank you very much for being here and just feeding us so much information. Uh, as a, uh, I'm Brazilian, so I'm a bit concerned about uh, the Amazon and all this stuff. I'm afraid I'm, I'm just going a bit out of the uh, main topic of everything, but I just would like to know about your your, your job and all your work, and if you have done everything or written everything. I'm actually I just recently just following your, your your work, and I would like to know if you if you have written everything or if you have any plans for the Amazon, and also if you've been to as well. I have only been to the western uh, part of Amazonia, so from Peru in, uh, and I haven't been to Brazil. Uh, but uh, like I always dreamed about going to uh, uh, Australia, and now we've been. Uh, there for uh, a here for a month. Uh, I would love to go to Brazil and experience the rainforest there. I haven't worked in South America yet, um, and that's not because I don't want to. And this gets back to the question of trying to save the orangutan. Incredibly important. Uh, so I haven't yet worked in Southeast Asia, uh, other than uh, being in China, um, and that's uh, uh, only because of the relative young age of the organization, ten years, and uh, uh, again, uh, resource limitations. Uh, what I'm hoping to do, as I uh, now that I, we've been successful, uh, I've been able to persuade more donors, big foundations, uh, to give us resources. What I'm very eager to do is to uh, not so much grow our own base of lawyers as create partnerships with organizations around the world uh, that we could work with, so uh, that we could share strategies, uh, help build capacity, find funding, uh, and you know build. Uh, uh, a global vision. Some of it's going on, many people do talk, but I, I would like to have much more talk about legal strategy, uh, country to country, and finding international resources to come in and build the capacity of people uh, in all of these various countries, including Brazil, where things need to happen. And they happen best if they happen w with the, uh, the people who live there and know the situation best. Well, <coughs> I'm cognizant of the time, and unfortunately, we have to, to end the discussion here. But before we, we depart, can I uh, ask you to join me in thanking James and Martin? That was James Thornton and Martin Goodman seeking justice for the planet at Antidote. If you like this talk, more from Antidote is coming your way very soon. Coming up, we have Muslim girl blogger Amani al Katabe, co-founder of the Occupy movement, Micah White, and a look back on 40 years of Mardi Gras with Julie McCrossan. Don't miss out. 
Subscribe to Ideas at the House wherever you get your podcasts.